Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Please have a seat. I, in your bulletins, instead of a scripture memory verse this time, again, like last week, we have pray for grace. We're wanting everyone to pray for grace. We're going into, we're introducing a passage today that begins one of the high points in all of the Bible about who God is and the promises that we have with him. And so I, we, we want everyone to be on guard. And we want you to be praying for your brothers and sisters here at Grace. We want to be alert to what's happening, that maybe some unusual and strange disagreements you're having or confusion or even your attention today is maybe not what you think it is. There's more to it than that, okay? We want you to continue to do that through the month of February today. Let me introduce our time in Philippians chapter 2 by telling you how pastors become missionaries. I've seen it happen. One particular time, it was an acquaintance of mine out of town, and he had been the pastor of this church for 33 years, helped start the church, very successful church, one of the larger ones in his denomination. God had done multiple miraculous things in this church. Only God could have done what this church had done. And they were... uh, entering a a time of of transition. They were going to make a turn and they needed to make decisions, difficult decisions about about leaving what we would say at this church, a a Bible church of the 70s and becoming a Bible church of of the contemporary time. And and so, so they had to talk through what that meant. And, and, And listen, there's miserly few churches that have made that turn. Because it's so much easier to just move out to the suburbs and just start brand new and not have to deal with that word, that word that religious people hate and fear, and that word that's been splitting churches for 2,000 years. Do you know the word? Change. It's the word change. Because religious people, they like they liked the way they were, they were doing things all along, and so they had a meeting. There were several meetings, but on this particular one, it was the one where they, they just brought up, they said, are we, are we going to use the music style we had in the, in the 1970s, or are we going to change? Uh, the, the teaching and preaching style that worked in the 1970s, are we going to continue with that because that worked for me, or are we going to change? What about the children's ministry? Uh, what about the style of governance? And so people... Uh, you know, had the opportunity to grab microphones and, and tell everyone their opinions on what they wanted in that church because it was their church and what worked for them, it should be what we do from now on. And there was arguments and disagreements that broke out. And this a friend of mine, 60 years old, 33 years, start, helped start the church, put his face down on the desk in front of everyone and just wept uncontrollably. He could not be consoled that night. He, w- he couldn't stop crying. Within a week, he resigned. And he became a missionary because, these are my words, but if the people you're cooking for don't like your cooking, and they're kind of overweight as it is, you might as well go cook for other people that are starving. And that's what he did. Travels the world teaching the Bible now. Now, I, now, listen, I don't get out much. I don't know very many people. I don't know very many other pastors. I, I, the reason I say that is because I've seen this happen four times. And I can see it in a guy's eyes now that he's done here. And the reason I tell you that is because this book called Philippians, we're looking at it together. 
This is Paul, clearly, this is Paul's favorite church. This is clearly Paul's strongest church. It is clearly his best church. And yet, he's writing them because of division. There's a few strong personalities in this church, and they're, they're wedging their way in, be, and, and it's going to cause the church to lose her power and her influence in the community because they're fighting. Know this. Conceit destroys relationships. Okay? Selfish ambition explodes families and intimacy. Pride, pr- pride is, is the hammer that pulverizes and turns to gravel. Everything that's good in unity, in marriage, in ministry. Pride is me first, what I want. Okay, that destroys unity. Now, here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at just the verses 1 through 5, and here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the universal power of unity. Life is unity. Then we're going to look at... uh, what causes unity? How do you get unity? The answer will be humility. And then we're going to try to figure out well, how, do you get, how do you get humility. Okay, we're going to look at the, the power of unity. Humility is the key to unity. And then how do you get humility? Uh, humility. Okay, so let's look at the first couple of verses. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I'll put them on the screens for you. If there's any encouragement in Christ, oh, you bet there is. The way this is written, any consolation in love, of course, yeah. Any sharing in the Spirit, absolutely. Any compassion and sympathy, of course there is. So verse 2, he says, Paul, then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's the power of unity. That's how, that's how life works. That's how life works. Same mind, same love, one mind. That's how marriages work. Same mind, same love, one mind. That's how work works. If you get a great place that work, here's what it's going to look like. It's going to be the same mind, same love, right? One mind. That's how a church works. That's what Paul's talking about. Same mind, same love, one mind. That's what you and I want. It's the way that we were made to work together. We were made to be one. We were made to be connected with each other. You want that? Yes. How do you get it? Well, just, I think I mentioned it last week. It's in almost every book of the Bible. Stop doing bad and start doing good. Stop thinking bad and start thinking good. Stop being bad and start being good. That's what Paul says in the next two verses. Look what he says in two and three. Or, I'm sorry, three and four. Stop being bad. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Start doing, being good. But in humility, regard one another as better than yourselves, that each of you look not only on your own interests, but on the interests of others as well. What's the problem? You know, we're trying to get unity. We, what do we have to do first? Let's look at that. Stop being bad. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Let's look at those words. Selfish ambition. That, there's nothing wrong with ambition. God made us that way. Selfish ambition says, I want what I want, okay, and whether God does or not. In the immediate context of this, there are two women. You'll read their names in chapter 4. Two women that are strong-willed and manipulative, and they are selfishly ambitious for the direction of the church. And so they are ta- they're trying to take it in different directions. They're selfishly ambitious. And it's causing disunity, and now the church can't be the church anymore. 
He says the other thing you have to stay away from is empty conceit. Uh, another translation, empty conceit, is also translated in, I think, the King James, called vainglory, which is a wonderful translation because the original Greek word is a combination of vanity and glory. What does vanity mean? Vanity means empty, non-existent, vacuum. Glory means honor, right? Respect. So don't do anything out of selfish ambition or, and, and I'm, we're going to spend time here because this is the essence of the broken soul. This, this hunger for honor. It is a lust for respect. It is a craving for, for being acknowledged. Right? I, I, it's, it's the assurance that I'm an important person. I'm an important person, and we've, we've lost. This is, the, this is a radical, deep insecurity in the souls of every human being, and this is what motivates them quite often to be selfishly ambitious. They don't want to feel like they don't count, that they, they want to feel like they matter. And you might even experience this in your own life. It's not uncommon for people to, rather, to, to, to prefer rather to be hated than ignored. Right? Bad press is better than no press. At least somebody's talking about how much they hate me because they're talking about me. It's honor. The universe mocks us. It looks down on us and says, look at you. Look at you. You don't matter. Look, here's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. I, this, these are supposed to be comics. You're right, fun. I'm significant. Scream the dust speck. And so we... We're deeply afraid of this truth, that, that we are wispy grass, grass on, a, on a hot August day. I mean, just withering and dying. We're uh, the breath that we can see on a cold winter morning, and it just it, it leaves. We're just ghosts. We're footprints on the beach and the waves, high tides coming up, and we will disappear. We will be dead. We will be forgotten, and it will be as though we never existed. Pascal, Blaise Pascal says this very fact, this vainglory, this hunger for honor, this, this missing thing that matters so much is why we stay so busy. In the 1500s, he wrote about how busy everyone was with hunt and hobbies and ambitions because we're trying to stay distracted from this. Let me get another Calvin and Hobbes. Look, look what he's saying here. It's like, oh, look at a clear night. Look how pretty it is. All the stars, millions of them. Sure, yeah, yeah. Look, we're just a tiny speck on a planet particle hurling through an infinite blackness. Uh, I'm gonna, let's go and turn on all the lights somewhere, right? The selfish ambition is, is connected to vain conceit because that... That vain conceit is motivating us to manufacture love and success and approval. This is the fundamental instability in the human soul. This is what motivates most of what we do. Why? Why, do, why is this part of our, our bent? The answer is, is because we were designed differently. We were designed to face out. And we've talked about that here. Let me just review. We were designed to face that. We were designed to, to gaze outwardly on God and other human souls. It's vain glory that invented the mirror. And, and, and humility was like, like standard issue in the human soul in its original design. 
Innocence, the gift of innocence that we had at one time, that's self-forgetfulness. That's what humility is. But we rejected that. We want to live on our own. We want to be our own person. We want to be our own gods. And we turn in. And in turning in, we get intoxicated on getting and on achieving and conquering. We get uh, addicted to ourself. (laughs) Hi, I'm Matt, and I'm addicted. Well, not a Matt. I'm addicted to me. Let's talk about me. Selfish ambition, vain glory, absence of glory, a vacuum of honor, and I'm going to live the rest of my life around this. I, I have to be noticed. Let me show you how prevalent this is. Hell in the Bible, Matthew chapter 7. Hell in the Bible, Matthew chapter 7. Someone comes to, you know, in the final review, right, comes to the presence of Jesus, and he says, I never knew you. I never knew you from the person that is most of all significant. And you are utterly ignored in that one sentence, utterly ignored for eternity. Huh? What, what's, what's your name? That's hell in the Bible. Now, look, in contrast, in heaven in the Bible, Revelation, in Revelation it says that we are given a name. Think of the honor, what's being said here, what is meant here. It says that we are given a name individually. Every single human soul is granted a name by God that only he knows. The angels and the stars don't know this name, and it's custom for you because there is only one you, and he knows that one you, knowing is giving you honor, and he says, I know you. I know your name. I'm giving you this name. That's what heaven is, this acknowledgement of honor. So the point is, the most profound analysis of the bent or broken part of our soul is this this hunger for honor, this void in our lives that we chase, and much of our selfish ambition is trying to fill this up. So what does health look like? If that's what's broken, okay, what does health look like, and how do we get it? Well, stop like being bad, start being good, right? Verse, uh, we'll pick it up at three just to remind you. Uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, right? Okay, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on your own interests, but on the interests of other people. Let me just review. Look what he's saying here. Unity, life is unity, and intimacy is unity, and church is unity. Well, how do you get unity? Right? You, you go over here, well, what's the problem? How come it's broken? How come we can't have the unity? We, because of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Well, how do we get that? Humility. Humility gets you unity. How does unity happen? It happens through humility. And it's, it's so very difficult for us. We're so far removed and we're from the West. Humility is a radical term here. Okay, if you consider the context of where it was written and when it was written, you'll see it's staggering that this author, Paul, is telling us to, in all humility. Because, it, okay, it's, it's Greco-Roman times, right? It's written in Greek, and, and then the Romans took over from that. But that, those cultures, the Greeks and the Romans, never used, you can't find this word used, maybe a few exceptions, right? In their, in their, in their books, where humility is a positive thing. It's a, humility is a derogatory term, is my point. You've seen the commercial, maybe some of you saw the movie, right? We are Spartans, right? Okay, Spartan is part of Greece. 
That's their, their Klingons, okay? They, they ruled by fear. And, and, and the definition of humility is gentle, modesty, self-forgetfulness. That's for the slave masses. And so Paul comes along, and the writers of the New Testament comes along, and they've used a version of the word humility 270 times. And it is almost always used in a positive context of what we were meant to be the way we were originally designed. My point is, is we roll this, this word humility out and we act like, oh yeah, that ought to happen. I'm telling you, it's a radically different word in the concept of the culture, but also in the bent part of our souls. How important is humility? How important is humility? Okay. It is the means of all relationships. It, it, is, the, it is the means of having any kind of connection with another human soul. It, humility means turning out, not looking anymore, turning out. It is humility that turns you out. We know this. It turns us out, and we, and we get on the ground. A grown man will get on, his, on the ground and sit on the ground so that he can play with a child and see them face-to-face, giving them honor, looking into their eyes, right? It is, it is humility, right, that will take bended knee for an older woman that might be in a wheelchair or sitting, and, and they'll go to bended knees so that they will have humility to turn out and look into the eyes of that woman and to give her right dignity and to make connection. For God so loved the world that he got on the ground, that he took a bended knee, that he humbled his son to the point of becoming a man so that we could relate to him, so he could relate to us. Humility is the love language of God. Humility is the love language of God. Humility is the, lo- is, is, is the language of every healthy soul. When you go into a relationship with God and you say, we should talk, I pray all the time, and God, we talk, you know, look at all that I've done for you. Do you. It's me. I'm moral, I'm good, I'm sacrificial. God can't hear that. He doesn't, speak that ta- he doesn't speak that dialect of pride. He has none of that in him. He says to you, you don't know who I am when you say those things. You don't know who you are when you bring me this soiled righteousness that stench. You don't know what the cross means when you say, I'm bringing me to you. But... But listen, humility is the language of God. When you go to him in, in, in repentance and you say, I, 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 come, I, I come just asking for grace, right? I come with nothing but sin. Then there's a relationship. I mean, just, just, I mean, just summarize. Humility is, uh, metaphorically, humility is the door swung wide open in relationships with our fellow man, gazing out, right? But in our relationship with God. Pride, the absence of humility, that is the door slamming and that is the padlock that keeps us out. That's the power of humility. That's the importance of humility for, uh, for unity, by the way. And if it, what's, what's great about this passage is it takes on both kinds of pride. You know, I cleverly call it pride A and pride B. But let me show you how it's, it's not telling us that humility is thinking terrible about ourselves. I mean, like in, 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 in humility, in all humility, regard others as better than ourselves. Let each of you look not only on your own interests, you're looking at your own interests, but on the interests of other people as well. So we all know about type A 
pride. That's, you know, that's the arrogant and the boisterous and the self-promoting and the bragging, right? Sure. He says, yeah, that's pride. But this passage addresses not not look look not only on your own interests. You can because type B pride is the person that says, "Oh, I." It's the person that's self-loathing. They're craving glory, and they're self-loathing. They're putting themselves down. They can't take a compliment. Um, they're you know they're harping on mistakes. They're right. They're afraid to draw attention to themselves. They're beating themselves up all the time. How am I coming across? Am I coming across okay? Is that okay? Right. And, and this passage says, in the passage says, look, it's not thinking badly of yourself. You can look at your own interests, but also in the interest of others. Here, here's the thing. Humility asks this question. Who are you thinking about? Who are you thinking about? That's, what the, that's the question that humility asks. And humi- the answer, it, it, humility is not thinking too much of yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. It's, humility is self-forgetfulness. That's, that's the key to unity and to relationships. Let me put it another way. Let me, here's a good example. I got some from someone. Can you imagine your ego, okay, this thing, this ego, if it were a body part? Okay, now, clearly... Type A arrogance, type A pride, type A lack of humility. Okay, that's the bulging bicep. That's the guy's like, look at me. You know, don't overlook me. I am a bulging bicep. Look, everyone. It's, and you know, I mean, the, the mothership of arrogance in this context, if you haven't been to the Muscle Beach in Venice, California, you should go. It's an outdoor gym for bodybuilders because if you're going to work out, you want to work out at a public beach. You want people to see that bicep, don't you? Right. So we know narcissism when we see it, okay? But, but type B, type B pride is, uh, going back to ego being body part, that's my bad knee. And my bad knee, okay, it's not, it's not something to be proud of, but it won't shut up. It's like, oh, click, 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 click. Oh, I'm in pain, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. You better respect me. You better not overlook me. I'm your bad knee. Next time you go down on a flat of stairs, I will face plant you. I've done it before. And that's type B pride because it's still talking about me. You know, can we talk about somebody else besides you, knee? Nope. Humility is my elbow. It's just working fine. It never even brings itself up. I forget I have an elbow a lot of times. Like, look, you know, it's like, hey, you're working fine. I know. Well, I come because I'm working. I don't bring my, I don't talk about myself because that's what humility is. And what he's saying here is you're not looking, you're not looking just on your own interest. That's okay. But you're looking at the interests of others as well. You're gazing out at other people. You're looking out. You're not thinking about yourself. You're not talking about yourself positively or negatively. Well, how do you get that? How do you get that kind of humility? It's pretty simple. You act humble. No, that's supposed to be funny. You can't act humble. You can't act humble because watch what happens when you're acting humble. You're just like, am I, am I acting humble right now? Am I acting humble right now? I'm still talking about me. Oh, I was a little bit proud. Stop being so proud. All you can be when you're acting humble is pretending not to be proud. One person put, 
Uh, humility is the shyest of virtues. As soon as you mention it, it runs and hides. Isn't that great? So how do you do it? Think of the, we're kind of in a pickle here, right? Right. We want unity. That's the way life works. And to have unity, you have to have humility because we have vainglory wrecking this. Well, how do you get humility? Well, you work on it. No, you can't work on it. Here's what, this is why I ask the Bible. I love the Bible because it's so true and practical. Verse 5 is the beginning of a hymn. If you look in like a, a real Bible with, with, on paper, remember those? It'll look like it's a hymn because it is. And the reason it's a hymn is because Paul wrote it, maybe, or, or copied it, and he wants this thing rattling around in your head. This is the high point of the Bible, 5 verses 5 through 11. We're not going to look at that today. We're just going to show how verse 5 introduces us to the solution of our problem, how do we get, how do we get humility? And, and so what he wants us to do is he's, he's going to say, look, this, this is Bible doctrine. This is the real thing. This is the densest, right, thickest, purest doctrine that you'll find about Jesus Christ in the Bible, 5 through 11. And he says, I want this to captivate your soul. I want this to set your spirit on fire. I want this to be the prime directive of all of your actions and emotion and, and thoughts. This is it right here. And so that's why he says in verse 5, he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the same mind be in you. Remember, remember we, one mind, one love? Same mind. This is the mind that we're all supposed to have together. Same mind. Here's the point. Humility, right, is the byproduct of pursuing something besides humility. Something greater than humility. Humility is a byproduct of pursuing something greater than humility. Because when you pursue, he's telling you to stop thinking about yourself. Turn yourself, turn your thought, this one mind, to be on the mind of Christ and that puts you back in many respects in the way you were designed to be. And you were designed, the human soul, in the nature of God, right? Man is in the image of God. We were designed, turned out, we were designed never to be forgotten. We were designed never to die. We were designed to live forever. We were designed to stand in his presence and endure that. And that, that's what Paul's drawing us to when we have this mind of Christ, and if the problem is vainglory, if we don't have it, if it's this all but infinite vacuum within us that causes us to have selfish ambition and motivates many of our decisions so that someone would acknowledge us, how does God solve that? In John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus prays this sentimental mystical prayer that the rest of your life you could spend trying to understand the depths of it. But let me just look at two sentences. Chapter 17 is that prayer, but two sentences. This is what Jesus prayed for you, for me, for grace. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. I'm handing off the glory because they have a glory void. I'm giving it to them that they may be one for unity. They would be one like we are one. I in them and you in me, so that 
they might be brought to complete unity. See how the glory that we're overflowing with glory, and now we're, because of that we can have complete unity. Then the world will know, they're a church, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even though you have loved me. You, they have, they know, that they long for, the universe cries out how pitiful they are and they hunger for this for honor and respect, I'm passing off all the honor and respect that you gave me, Father, and I'm going to put it in their little cups, and it's going to spill over everywhere and, and into each other, and they will become completely one, and they will be so captivated by that, they will be compelled to be looking out at what they've received instead of turning in at what they don't have. If you claim your own glory, you get none. If you acknowledge, here's the secret. This is, this is so counterintuitive. It, it's such judo. If you try to grab glory, you get none. If you acknowledge and face the, the truth, the existential angst of who you are, you get more than you can imagine. If you realize, you, I mean, you say, right, you know, um, Munch's angst, remember the bridge, the guy like that, right? That's what he's having to deal with. He is grass. You say, yes, I am like the grass in the hot August day. I am nothing more than a breath on a cold winter morning. I'm nothing, I'm nothing more than, than a sandcastle getting washed away at a high tide. I have no right for glory. Then, right? The glory of the Lord comes upon you. Jesus says, you can have mine. That's all true. All that you said was true. And all that I say is true. You have my glory. The glory the Father gave to me, I'm giving to you so that you'll be one, as the Father and I are one, so that you'll be complete unity with one another because you won't be glory stealing from people. Now, what this causes in your life to happen is you'll have this internal argument because we're stupid okay we are so we have this these promises but we still walk around with tapes playing and we have this internal argument to have the mind that was in Christ and when we feel slighted or we feel left out or we feel ignored or someone says we're dumb like in church that was poor. Okay, you know what I'm, yeah, we're still friends. All those things, right? And you can meditate on those, or you can have the mind of Christ and who cares? Who cares? I don't even care what you think about you. And, and if you'd stop talking to yourself with lies and the father of lies and have the mind that is in Christ that he handed off the glory that was given to him by the Father and he's given it to you, you should think on those things. He's trying to get you to stop thinking about your need for glory because when you acknowledge your absence of glory, you receive infinite glory and causes you to be humble, which causes you to be connected and unified with people in church with God the Father. You, if you grasp this, I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm not suggesting it's, it you know, doesn't take a lot of time. We'll, look, we'll spend more time in weeks to come because it's so profound. All, this is all we can take in today, isn't it? 
But if you grasp this, you can mock the stars. You stand out on a clear night and stare into the Milky Way and you laugh out loud and you say, you know what? In a hundred billion trillion years, you will all have supernovaed. But I am in the image of God and I will live with him forever. You are a passing star and I am an infinite being with the glory that has been given to me by the Son. Where is your shame now? And all your regrets. And one more time, do-overs. You, could, you, you go to the Rockies and you stare at those massive, you know, tectonic plates coming out of the earth and you say, you know, you're being ground down to gravel. And you're majestic now, but you'll be rolling at the bottom of a river soon. And I, I am human. And I am not the way I was meant to be, but I will be glorified. And I have honor, not my own, but his. And with the power of the confidence that I have to mock the Rocky Mountains and laugh at the stars in the sky, I will be vulnerable and connected and brave and transparent and humble and serve. That's what God has to offer us. We have to spend more time thinking about it, don't we? We have to spend more time learning about that. So we're only in chapter 2. You need to come back. Today, we're going to pray this. We're going to pray that we can grasp this just for a few more minutes. And maybe, here, I'm going to pray this. I'm going to pray that you have a confrontation with this vain glory versus inherited glory this week. I hope God's spirit wins that argument. Lord Jesus, these things are true. These things are true. That you prayed this, that you would, that the Father would give the glory that you gave me, though, so that as you are one with, with the Father is one, that you would, we would be one with you so that we might be brought into complete unity. Lord, this truth of inheritance of an infinite glory in a vacuum that seemed close to that, Lord, I'd ask that our internal argument that we'd have a really good knockdown, drag-out brawl this week and we would fight these demons within us or these insecurities, these you know, pride-type twos or pride-type ones, A and B, and we would fight them and destroy them with the power of these promises. God, would, you, would your spirit remind our spirit about what the promises are and what are true and the majestic power that they have, that we would turn towards you and find ourselves gazing at your greatness, that we would have the same mind that, that Jesus Christ had. We pray this with great expectation and faith, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.